The Evolve to Succeed podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and experts are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. We will also investigate and establish the need for ongoing personal development, accountability, and support. The objective is to inspire you, the audience, to be better in life and in business. Hello, I am Warren Munson, founder of Inspire and Evolve, and my guest on this week's episode of the Evolve to Succeed podcast is Ross Thornley. Ross is co-founder and CEO of AQAI, an adaptability assessment and coaching company. He is also author of Moonshot Innovation, which explores the benefits and consequences of rapid technological innovation. Ross has also previously founded, run and exited a brand agency business. During the course of this podcast, Ross and I explore and talk about the characteristics that make up an entrepreneur and whether those characteristics are inherent or nurtured or both. They have these certain character traits that are synonymous with entrepreneurs, you know, of confidence or belief or a desire for independence. They can still show up in people that aren't necessarily entrepreneurs. I think it's a trigger of multiple things. We reflect on how a period of frantic success often leads to the realisation that you need to go in a new direction. I wasn't unhappy, (laughs) you know, I was just looking at uh, expanding that, you know. So for me, it wasn't about pursuit of happiness, but it was more about the expansion of. And Ross points out that we have the ability to decide how we view things simply by adjusting our perceptions. There's a great quote, uh, Dan Sullivan, you, you know him as well, and I spend a lot of time with him. And it's your eyes only see and your ears only hear what your brain is looking for. So if I tell my brain to look for good things, it's going to find it. If I tell it to, you know, look for bad things, it'll find it. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, Ross, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thanks, Warren. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Yeah, it was good to have you finally on as a guest on the podcast. So really, focus of this uh, podcast is to learn a bit more about you, Ross, what you've been up to on your entrepreneurial journey so far, some of the things that inspire you and motivate you uh, that are relevant to our listeners. So should we just kick off with something really simple? When did you start your own entrepreneurial journey? I think that's, you know, quite an interesting question. You know, when does one start their entrepreneurial journey? And um, what springs to my mind is the fact that all things are created twice, first in the mind and then in reality. So my entrepreneurial journey first started in my mind. And I guess that for many entrepreneurs was as a child and they look around themselves, they see either their parents or other people and think to themselves, is it a career, a job, a role I want, or have I picked up certain things where I'm taking um, you know, an opportunity, a value, and then finding a way to position that uh, for some kind of benefit or return at the other end. And I think I was doing that as a child all the way through my life, you know, whether it was in negotiations <laughs> with my brother uh, or even my parents, you know, of having that entrepreneurial spirit of making and uh, producing things uh, from one source uh, to another. 
But I think the real journey beyond having a variety of jobs and things probably started in the in the late 90s when I'd learned a little bit more about a particular craft and then going out in the world to see if I could sell it and serve people. And what was that initial craft and expertise that you developed? Yeah, so it, it's interesting whilst, you know, many have bought and sold things, you know, I bought items whilst at school and sold them to school friends. But really, I had a passion initially for sign writing. And there used to be a sign writing shop in Holdenhurst Road. And I remember going there and saying, can I just come and observe what you do? Can I learn about it? And uh, started the craft of, you know, painting hand signs. And he uh, gave me one and I would uh, you know, reproduce tracings over it with fresh paint. And that kind of led into uh, graphics and graphic design. That's what I went to college for. And that was really my, um, what I would say, my real entrepreneurial journey started in in graphics. And so it was about communications and design. And, you know, people call it freelancing now, but essentially the balance of whilst I was working for other people, getting gigs directly with the client for me to produce materials, brochures uh, and things like that before there was web. And was that always your aim to start your own agency, do you think? It's a really good question because I guess, you know, a couple of decades on from there, it's hard to remember what your mindset was. I think I was always driven and I had a balance of, um, you know, am I a good team player or am I a leader? And what are the differences between the two? And as a child, I played a lot of sports, enjoyed a lot of sports and got frustrated in team sports when perhaps... Uh, the performance wasn't as good as I'd hoped it would be. And so if I think about the same in my business life, when I was working for some others, I wasn't quite convinced that the performance was as good as it should be. So the desire to, you know, whether it's win or produce a great performance or a great result at the other end, that's what I was driven by. And an entrepreneurial journey gave me the best freedom to uh, impact that end result for clients or uh, my team members around me or those sorts of things. So I think it was a natural progression. Um, You know, a friend of mine, Gino, wrote a book called Traction, and it's all about the entrepreneurial operating system. And his new one is called Entrepreneurial Leap. And he's got an interesting perspective that you're not made an entrepreneur. You know, you don't become one. You just either are or aren't. And so I'm not really sure how much I believe in that, but maybe my parents might have a better answer that they've always said I was either going to be an entrepreneur or in jail, one or the other. Yeah, (laughs) it's that nature-nurture piece, isn't it? And I suppose what I always see is there's there's a sense of an independent mind, isn't there, in an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. or an independent business owner, whatever founder, whatever you want to call call it. And it's that sense of independence and self-belief that probably starts most people on their entrepreneurial journeys. Um, yeah, I, suppose I think that's what you're saying. You're showing in your early stages of your sort of Yeah, so you have these career. certain character traits that are synonymous with entrepreneurs, you know, of confidence or belief or a desire for independence. They can still show up in people that aren't necessarily entrepreneurs. I think it's a trigger of multiple things. Um, and for me, I guess it was a sense of 
a balance of control and freedom, which is maybe shared by lots of entrepreneurs, um, but also a desire to pioneer, to do things that perhaps haven't been done before, rather than just purely a commercial opportunity to explore the way in which things can be solved. So for me, it was this balance of an innovator and an entrepreneur and a business owner. And I think they're quite different things. And my journey over the last couple of decades has been me figuring out which one of those am I really. <laughs> Have you figured it out yet? Or maybe I should ask you that at the end. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> um, so I know the first business was after you were freelancing was RT Brand Communications. So tell us a bit about those very early years in that business. Yeah, it's interesting. So I was working for a publishing company in Bournemouth uh, in their advertising department. I was doing some freelancing for another agency, which was called USP, and they were based over by Bournemouth Hospital. And they had quite a few big clients at the time, Cable and Wireless, uh, Demon Internet, Hewlett Packard, uh, Lumar Sailing Winches, those sorts of things. And I was doing some freelance work with them. And one of the projects I did helped them win a big contract. They then offered me a job. I worked there for about six months before they were bought by a technology company in London, which then closed the Bournemouth office down. So um, I was actually on holiday at the time when all of that happened uh, to come back to, you know, a closed office and uh, redundancy piece. And that led me to another um you know agency much smaller worked there for a while and had this opportunity then to work either for a company in london so i did a, a advanced course on a particular software platform at the time that was um you know in high demand and i was offered a job in you know one of the top 4 uh, agencies in london to set up at the time what was called their new media department, which didn't exist. And I thought, well, there's somebody here who kind of knows what they're doing, um, has been successful in the past and sees something in me. Uh, do I want that uh, set up inside someone else or do I want to give it a go myself? So I'd got at the time very limited uh, responsibilities. I still lived at home um at the time yeah, you were quite and young at the time weren't you i was indeed yeah <laughs> and i felt i might as well give it a go now so i started up in the my bedroom of my parents uh home uh, which soon progressed into the hallway when i took on a first member of staff who's somebody i went to college with which then progressed into the garage you know so i had very um understanding <laughs> and supportive parents that you know the barrier was buy yourself a Mac and then, you know, use your, your brain and your, you know, your uh, conversational skills to see if you can win some business and then deliver on it. And it slowly grew from there. Um, and in the beginning, it was actually called RT Studios at the time. Okay. And uh, recently in a move, I came across a, a granite stone um etching piece that my nan had given me um as a as a kind of present which had rt studios um engraved into this 
piece of granite, which reminded me of, you know, perhaps where it started. So, yeah, it started really small and just me. Then slowly, as I got more work on taking on that balance between working all the hours and then not really affording to be able to get a member of staff, but then getting one and then increasing your capacity. And it kind of flowed from there. Kind of flowed from there. And was there an original ambition for that business? Or was it an income generator to begin with? Um, it wasn't really, and it never has been for me about um, financial income. It's been about the opportunity to uh, experience, to learn, to build connections with people, uh, to do projects that I was proud of. And I've always been very ambitious. So um the tallest thing that I could see at that time was a big ambition for me. And of course, when you get there, you see new taller things and new buildings, right? So in relative terms, it's no different. I don't feel in the level of ambition I'm now seeking. It's just that I'm at a higher plateau to the start point. So it's always an expansion of that ambition. Um, so at the time, the the whole approach to build things quicker, better, faster, um was always there and i i did have an ambition to work with recognized brands on recognized projects rather than um perhaps smaller local things and that was always my ambition right from the start wow and how long was that arty sort of journey for you so the roller coaster of that was about 17 and a half years uh, for me so it started in 2000 and uh, officially and ended in uh, 2017 when I exited that business and sold it and you know very very early on I managed to get some uh, very small projects with a, a big recognized brand with with Sony uh, Sony Professional yeah. and that was through a contact uh, in the publishing business that I'd been in before they were let down by somebody um another agency they called me because i had a particular skill set and techniques of producing certain animated gifs on the web at the time and they were going through a heavy kind of rebrand let's call it of all of their communication material and they had a hard deadline of lots of assets needing to be done and um me being me i just you know, sat at the machine and didn't stop until those things were done. You know, it wasn't as if it was, you know, staff members and normal times timings of what you did. And so 10 o'clock the next day, uh, you know, essentially what would have taken a week or more with the other agency with uh, proposed more capability and capacity was done um, and done at a level that, you know, went on for a 17 year journey with with Sony so you know it's wow. very interesting how i evolved my business to have very long valuable relationships with clients which is quite rare in the industry of you know brand and marketing and advertising uh, agencies but there is there is a few things that come out of that isn't there there is that one of the things that i always admire in sort of owner-managed businesses and I don't think that generally we do it enough is that ability to do just that to be committed to be innovative to be different and actually stand out from 
the more major competitors in our fields and the corporates by, you know, actually going that extra mile, taking that extra step and showing that extra commitment. And when small businesses do that, big organisations respond really well to it because it's not the level of service they're used to, is it? And clearly in your case, that drew the benefit of having Sony as a client for 17 years, which is remarkable. It did. And of course, you know, you had lots of change over that period from the relationships and the people that we worked directly with naturally over time would leave that corporate organisation. So often what happens at that point is, you know, new person comes in and with them, they bring their relationships of their agency. And so it's a high risk situation that each time, a, um, you know, a director with budget in whichever field in their supply chain that they're using, when there's change, there's often a, you know, a questioning and an audit of what's happening and what's going on. And we survived many of those and not only survived, we thrived because that for us was mainly our growth strategy because as people left Sony, if we could retain Sony and then um, when they went to the new place, we got in there too. That was kind of how we were developing, you know, some major brand relationships uh, was because we looked after those people and managed to retain the client after those people moved to the next places. And I think the the balance of being someone who consistently over-services and undervalues yourself and you're then being taken advantage of to a truly, you know, co-elevating and collaborative relationship. And I think that ebbs and flows. And so it's about being responsible um, to either yourself or your workforce uh, and to the client and finding that unique kind of ebb and flow balance uh, between them. Because either side of the the pendulum is not sustainable. But that would be something interesting to explore because I imagine a number of our listeners are in that business-to-business services world. Mm. And having those collaborative long-term relationships is one of the things that is important to me within both Inspire and Evolve. But it can be difficult to get that right balance. And how do you think you really did that over that 17-year period? Over that period? I think it was based on our, you know, openness and values and that we were, you know, you do have to balance it. You really do, because in strategic moves of running a business, sometimes you have to take things on the chin and other other times you have to stand up and say, hey, look, this is not going to produce the best outcome. And I think the what often happens is you have breaking points that then mean the communication becomes emotional rather than you can be really humane in the way you have those conversations but decisive in the decision making of what led to it and I think what breaks it is that happening in reverse that you're not able to have a a non-emotional conversation about something that may be very emotional for you because you've let it become that way so I think how we did it was having a you know, a relationship with key people where I could say, you know, it's not a sense of even using the word fair, you know, it, it, it for us was about uh, being realistic and um, allowing for the best work to be done that needs, yes, sometimes some pressure and you're going to have budget constraints, but equally being able to stand up when we are the small one. 
oh, it's Sony. So every time you have to jump and when they say this, you have to do it. Well, sometimes, you, you know, positioning that back to them in a way in which allows them to, you know, receive it without getting uh, frustrated uh, or for us to become frustrated and it break us. It's not easy. It really isn't easy. But I think the key to it was just good communications between us. Okay. And obviously you talk about it being a 17-year journey. And at what point did you realise that, and we'll go on to talk about some of the things you've done since, some things you're doing now, uh, which are truly inspirational, Ross, but what point did you realise that perhaps your journey with RT was going to be coming to an end? And what were you, and what, how did you plan that? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, looking back uh, in hindsight versus how you're thinking and planning and at the time are two very different things. So for, for me, I always invested in myself and my team to develop and grow. And therefore, some clients grew at a similar, you know, harmonious pace so that we were allowed and able to develop ourselves and provide something that is of value to them. And other times that provided a gap, which then ended the relationship. So either we've developed quicker and faster than maybe a client in what they're needing and vice versa. So I think the, for me, the investment in probably the last six years, so about 10 years in, I had a real reflection point of the business um, and looking at what I'd built so far and what did I want to take on to the next decade? What did I want to leave behind and what did I want to build from? And really digging deep into me where I'd just been in you know, survival mode. You're just going from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing and not really looking at what the business model is, what do you want to create, what kinds of projects do you want to imagine um, rather than just what comes to you. Yeah, I, I talk about that in terms of we get to that point of frantic success, don't we? Where yeah. And it happens very early on in a business life. After you get through that early startup phase, you can just become frantic and you're succeeding, but you're not stopping to reflect as to why yeah. you're succeeding and the which means. And the which means is where is it going to take me? Is it yeah. taking me on my journey that I intended or is it taking me to a completely different destination? And so what you're saying is about 10 years in, similar to my story, isn't it? But <laughs> 10 years in, you reflected and decided actually there was a di different destination required. Yeah, I think the, the permission to reimagine. So it might have been you know, I wasn't unhappy, <laughs> you know, I was just looking at uh, expanding that, you know, so for me, it wasn't about pursuit of happiness, but it was more about the expansion of. And so that gave me maybe permission to myself and team to reimagine what that might look like. And, you know, the landscape had changed a lot. You know, when I started, uh, there was about four agencies and then one for in our county, you know, in, in Dorset, sort of Bournemouth and Paul uh, of merit in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then you go on 10 years and there's three or four hundred, um, you know, each one of a few people with specialisms in different areas that might collaborate together for certain projects. So you take that one shift of the environment in which our industry played in one town and one county 
and scale that up across the nation and across every other country, um, it had become a very different game. And the model was very, very different. Um, and I was constantly challenging this uh, issue of many B2B type service, professional services businesses of what are we selling and what are people buying? And generally that trade of currency was time. So everything was based on how many hours, how many days, what the rate was, and then what might be produced from that. So you get a brief, you get a spec, whether it's a web, a brochure, a brand, you break it down into the tasks and days and you'd build your, you know, costings and budget around that. And for me, that just perpetuated a frustration that it didn't really to me matter about how long things were taking to whether that was going to give the result or not at the other end so trying to build and re-engineer an industry that's based on that to be based on not even the output that we're doing but the outcome that it has for the client because a lot of what we were doing was a means to an end a means to an end of growth or sales or market acquisition not to get a website or a brochure or an event or whatever, those were still a stepping stone to a, a latter uh, outcome. And so how could we shift the way in which we worked to be more responsible for the result of something rather than just achieving a project and going, ta-da, great, well done. And really the only thing is for a lot of it, whether the client's happy or not um, <laughs> in the journey, but you're not really being measured or or rewarded on whether it works or not. So, you know, I think the the balance of that 10 years, just to come back to that, the reimagining of my journey that then I took, I didn't see it at the time, but it then created a gap in the business between me and the team and clients in that me untethered and without the anchor of yesterday or the agency and set free to learn and expose myself to new things, other entrepreneurs meant I saw things so differently. And what my agency became over those next seven years from being the thought of a springboard that would accelerate and propel me forward to a feeling of, is this actually an anchor that is not allowing me to go on to my next chapter? And so that was the kind of tension point I had for a number of years is how could I re-engineer the business to allow me and the business to coexist in a way that I felt uh, was the, you know, next phase. And that must have been extremely challenging from a mindset perspective, yeah. because knowing you as I do, Ross, um, and having spent some time with you, you're, you have a very positive outlook on life, but when you're in that kind of situation where you're feeling, as you say, am I being anchored here or am I being allowed to let fly? And one yeah. of the things that's anchoring you is a business that you're passionate about, that you founded, to find the spirit to let that go in a meaningful manner and to move on must have been extremely difficult, as I say, from that mindset perspective. It was. And, you know, we build up all of these things that, uh, like you said, frantic success or, you know, fostered sense of what was acceptable or not, obligation, excitement, guilt, you know, all of these things are in that soup. You know, they're not uh, clearly defined. It can be even just in moments of thought, you can feel all of those things. So the the don't get me wrong, you know, one of my most favourite months of all months 
was in uh, a November period. I think it was uh, 2016. And it was just an incredible, incredible month. We decided to take on 14 massive pitches uh, to go and present at an event. And we were presenting to, uh, you know, Tesla on the launch of Model 3, on Hyundai of their Ion uh, launch, to uh, Whirlpool, to some, you know, major, major brands uh, in one month, 14 pitches, whilst also doing the normal business that we were doing. So, you know, we were at that time probably you know, we were billing 150K a month of normal work and we had these 14 pitches to do on top of that. And so in that month, we uh, essentially went from about 20, 25 full-time staff to adding another 50 people for that month from around the world to collaborate on these pitches. And it was full on, absolutely full on. But it was one of my most fond memories of just thinking about what could be possible if you do, if you get the right kind of people and you're really focused and you have a process for pulling together ideation, that was amazing. So it wasn't that I was totally disillusioned and I just didn't want it anymore. I still got lots of fulfillment from it, but there was still this excitement of what might be possible beyond the model of an agency. And I suppose there was those tentative moments like that time in November 16, where I suppose you started to see what could be possible with yep. collaboration and a different different approach as well, which must have then widened the gap further when perhaps normality returned to the agency. Yeah, very much so. And, um, you know, we had some wonderful gifts of experience uh, to see the world through new eyes when you go and do different projects and you meet different people. And I started to um, intentionally network outside of the local community, not because I didn't like the local community, but because I wanted to see what else was out there. You know, what was going on in different countries? What were entrepreneurs thinking in those countries? What were businesses doing in, in different areas? And Whilst doing that, it's the balance between, oh, you've still got to maintain, you know, the ship sailing whilst you're looking at the new potential places you could go. And I I intentionally built systems and invested in people and the team for it to become self-managing. And my desire was not to sell the business at all. You know, that wasn't the objective. The objective was for it to be self-managing to allow me to go off on the adventures, but perhaps then just uh, be an owner and maybe chairman rather than as active as I had been in the in the previous years. So that was the actual plan was to make it self-managing and uh, built a team around that I felt had uh, at the time, some of the, the skills, desire to do that, to allow me and uh, one or two of the team to go off and, and try some new things. And that's what we were building in, um, you know, 2017. I'd actually extracted myself and one other individual from the business to go off and uh, see if we could have a crack at something new whilst the business was still then uh, running, the agency was still running. And that extraction piece, I mean, it's something that a lot of 
founders, entrepreneurs, business owners uh, say they strive for. Some, I think, you know, don't always intend to do it. They feel they should be doing it, but actually the control mechanisms inside them mean they want to stay attached. But you clearly had a purpose and a reason to let go and build that senior leadership team to take your business on. But even still, what were the challenges you faced um, in that period? Because I think that would be really helpful to some of the listeners that are going through that thought process right now about how do they extract themselves? So I think there's a combination of two forces. You know, there's a push and a pull and uh, the things you need necessary on both those sides. You know, a, a, a hammock needs tension you know it needs the two trees on either side for it to be useful so you need to have some tension you need to have some friction there and i think one of the challenges i've seen is that there's not necessarily enough real pull for that entrepreneur or founder to go into and it's more of the push sense of um from the business or team or themselves of their view of the business but they don't have a what next So that often doesn't allow them to relinquish control because they keep wanting to come back in because they see things, they're involved in things, even in just uh, the reports are coming back to them and they They want to contribute that. They want to contribute value because that's part of their identity that they've been the person that people look to for leadership, for vision, for those sorts of things. And so the extraction of that is 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 difficult so for me the challenges i felt of um oh i still want to be involved because that's who i am and that's my identity and that's how everybody sees me and when i look in the mirror that's who i am i had a big pull factor to something else um and i didn't want to let it go without you know acknowledgement of the fact it will be different I remember some of the challenges of the new person I uh, put in place of, you know, really myself intentionally embracing this fact that if I've put somebody in a role as an MD, I have to not just give them the title and the hat and then actually handcuff them. If their decisions uh, are different to mine, you know, I need to allow them the freedom to really embrace that role. I can, you know, articulate my feeling and thought, but I had to divorce myself from I'm the owner and the founder. I've put this, I need to trust in them, explain a case of why I don't think that's a particularly good idea, but that's done in private. And then I had to fully back them. And that was a hard challenge, um, particularly when it involved team members. You know, there were certain team members where the vision and view of the new MD didn't see them in that way. And I obviously had the legacy, (laughs) you know, I'd got the relationship of what was going to be looking at in the past and what it would look like in the future. Well, that's down to the new MD to be part of that and influence the how. So I had to back some things that I didn't, I wouldn't have made the same choices, but I felt that was the right thing to do. Otherwise I'd always be trapped. So you have to take on some of those risks and in hindsight, would you have done it differently? Would you have, is it what lessons did you learn that you reflect back now on and say, if I had that time again, uh, yep. this is what I may have done differently? So, you know, the, the sale came about 
um, from a third party who came in to say, ah, I want to buy an agency and I think your agency is the one I want to buy. And I thought, well, this is fantastic. Only a couple of weeks before I was lying in bed with Karen and said, do you know what? I think I might consider selling. And I had never really verbalized or articulated that to myself or someone before, but the business was not necessarily geared up for sale. Many companies kind of do that. They work on a plan for a couple of years to ensure maximum value, you know, so you might adjust how you're applying your resources and your accounting to, you know, realize the maximum possible in a, in a sale. For me, I was investing, investing, investing in development. You know, I was using it to develop new ideas, new opportunities. And so it wasn't as either profitable or on the, the balance sheet as valuable as it could have been. But I felt I'd already been gifted, you know, at that time, 17 years of a wonderful experience and journey that any financial part would be on top of. Now, of course, you don't use that level in the negotiations because the business had value you know we were a, a seven-figure business and had a decent team and decent clients and so what would I have done differently um there's many things actually Warren I would have done differently <laughs> um one of them would have been um not trying to save on the professional services of legal fees because yeah. I following the sale, you know, we're now in a situation where the agency doesn't exist. You know, it was 17 years of profitable every year for 17 years and then 18 months under new ownership and it went into liquidation. So it was a very sad end to that story of that agency. And how do you reconcile that in your mind, Ross? I know you wanted to move on. There was a pool, and again, come on yep. to discuss what that pool was. But seventeen years of your blood, sweat, and tears mm -hmm. passed on to new ownership, still with yep. your name effectively behind it. Yep, doesn't succeed. How do you reconcile yourself with that from an emotional perspective? Because I don't think I could, <laughs> if I'm being brutally honest. Yeah, I think mixed, Warren, I really do. And, you know, what is a business? And it's a sum of lots of different things, you know, in the hive of what that uh, entity is over the creation. You know, the works that you've done uh, create some legacy. The impact on members of staff creates a legacy. Over that period I uh, of seven, you know, all, the, all those years, employed about 100 people over that period. So we had the opportunity to learn from and develop many people. And I know that that lives on, whether they're in the same home under a, a name that was, you know, founded by me, or they're in lots of other walks of life. The impact of what we did absolutely lives on. So that, um, how do I reconcile it in my mind? is the uh, outreach and relationships that I have with everybody involved in that, bar the new ownership, which, you know, perhaps not for a public uh, podcast, but no. uh, my no. views there. But for everyone else in terms of clients and team that I had, I don't feel that will ever have gone. We still have it. We still have relationships and we've moved our chapters differently, 
but that um, gives me an immense sense of pride. And some of the work that we did has given many other organizations uh, great futures, great experiences and, and growth. The collapse of it, I've got two emotional responses to that. One is how did it affect me personally, uh, both financially and emotionally? And then how did it affect you know, the new owners and the team that were left and the clients that were there? I have to, the way I dealt with it was say, after me, I have no influence, responsibility or bits from it. As soon as I'd signed that piece, whatever had then happened from there, I can't take uh, either fulfillment from, oh, it did really well or that it didn't do well. It's got nothing to do with me after that yeah, point. You'd made your decision at that point. Hadn't you? I'd and made my decision. Your... Yeah. yeah. And so I couldn't uh, feel any other way than that. Uh, how it affected me was through some, you know, I have to take responsibility of that you know, of, of any kind of, uh, negative impact in me wasn't because of others. It was because of my, um, you know, my decisions, my own, either lack of experience, lack of foresight, um, or over trust, you know, and I'd, I'd built yes. my business where, uh, everything had been assumed noble intent. And, uh, as it unfathom, you know, as it unfolded of these various uh, courses of things that happened after the sale, um, I was just taken back and surprised of how some people run businesses or in reality are unable to run businesses because it falls over. But, you know, I we will take it be for granted living... at times that that's an easy thing to do, isn't it, to run a Absolutely. business, but it's not. Absolutely. Um, and I know financially this has negatively impacted me for probably the next five years, um, which wasn't part of the plan, Warren. You know, part of the plan was to no. be able to go and do the next adventures. But it's it's just meant I've had to adapt to the next adventures in how I how I achieve them, you know, and the the yeah. pressures that it's, it's they're put still on. achievable, aren't they? It's they're still there. Now that ambition and belief will be inside you. It's just that, like, as you say, it's going to be a different journey to get to that point. And I love Definitely. that um, explanation because I think it gave us a great definition of what true legacy is. You know, it's that impact we have on others, the opportunity that we create for others, and the memories that we leave behind as a result of our own personal journeys in life and in business. And I think Absolutely. That's, yeah. that's something that it was great to hear you say because I think that's something that we should all take pride on. But again, not all of us are emotionally sound enough to <laughs> understand that and reflect enough in it and take enough joy from it. There's a great film. It got panned a lot, I think, by the critics, but uh, called Collateral Beauty, and it had Will Smith in it, a um, number of interesting uh, actors. And, and the premise was... How do you find beauty in the fact that he'd just lost his young child? Uh, so in death, how do you find beauty? And um, it's really interesting of perspectives that we go through in life. You know, when we face different challenges, health challenges, business challenges. Um, you know, I know we weren't going to talk much about COVID-19, but, you know, external challenges that change the way we see things and what we can do. 
and we um there's a great quote uh dan sullivan you you know him as well and i spend a lot of time with him and it's your eyes only see and your ears only hear what your brain is looking for so if i tell my brain to look for good things it's going to find it (laughs) if i tell it to you know look for bad things it'll find it so that self-management and control of how we perceive the world out there either you know at some fringes we end up in padded cells um and a delusional and at other parts we're able to deal with uh grief and bad situations and we're also able to take gratitude in the good and the bad times great fantastic so let's move on to to what the pool was so what happened what's happened mm. since uh, you know the, the agency. kind of you handing over the reins of the agency. What what have you gone on to do since, Ross? Yeah, and I'll um, try and give this a bit of context as well. You know, uh, one of the big turning points in in projects for me at the agency was um, a project for the United Nations and the UN volunteers and many of the local people will know that was a really impactful project for me personally. Um, and for the agency and I treated it as a, a real gift of a, a career opportunity to understand how other parts of the world function and work and uh, that reimagining of who I want to be and I came across the sustainable development goals which happened sort of a year 18 months after we completed this rebrand project for UN volunteers and that caught me at the right time, you know, and I think our purpose gets molded, um, gets built through choices. It's yes, there, but it still takes work to find our purpose and our mission. It's a bit like good sculptors, you know, in the rock, you know, the, the piece inside is already there. They're just, you know, going and finding it. They're not necessarily creating it. So our purpose is inside us, but we still have to, you know, chip off the the bits through experience, through exploring, through trial and error and seeing what sticks and emerges. So my purpose started to emerge around those sustainable development goals of how do I move the needle? Are those, you know, a to-do list for the planet? And then combined a variety of unique abilities and capabilities and passions. You know, I, I love technology you know, I've spoken on some of your stages uh, about exponential technologies and how we can leverage these to solve big challenges. And when we're faced with, you know, really big challenges that require imagination, not purely just uh, tweaks of productivity or efficiency to drive that kind of innovation or, or change, that sparked me to then how can I replicate imaginary innovation in organizations to solve big problems at scale. So I started then to facilitate workshops, built programs, built methodologies, thinking tools to give this kind of opportunity for people to innovate at the edge, at the the outer fringes of what people consider possible with my view of how much change we're going to be facing in this next decade will be unfathomable. So if that is the case through technology, through all variety of factors, 
the world we live in by 2030, which is when these goals are, you know, to be achieved by, is going to be so dramatically different. We need a different operating system in the way that we function as humans and teams and as businesses. So that was the big pull. How can I drive innovation and build a business model that is much more scalable, maybe the agency one? and be rewarded by impact, positive impact for humans and people and businesses and not just, say, financial impact uh, of those. So if I quickly wrap that to, you know, building and still half a foot in what my legacy was, you know, in terms of I'd been an agency person. And so the model of that business was running workshops and I just wanted to train more people to run more workshops around the world for clients to go and do innovation and trying to build some technology that might replicate some of those things to make it more scalable. And then I came across this challenge of in most areas, the biggest barrier and the immune system to change and to really big innovation was humans and people, not technology. And so how they adapted or didn't, you know, how they went back to business as normal, or we can't do that because this is the way we've always done things. Trying to then understand what makes somebody take giant leaps of change and adapt at speed, because I recognized and my prediction was that speed was going to be our you know, both biggest opportunity and biggest challenge. So we had to re-engineer how we operate as humans and as businesses in a world that's exponential is going to be very different requirements of our abilities and capabilities in in decisions and those sorts of things. So that's started me on this adaptability journey. I'm going to pause there for a moment because it's a lot of of info. Yeah, I mean, it's great info as well, but obviously... That that is a realization, isn't it? Is that we all deal with change differently. There's the typical change curve. There's that piece around how yep. the people adapt, and mm-hmm. and we see it every in everyday life. Clearly, you know, again under the COVID situation at the moment, we're seeing uh, exponential change happen right in front of us, and change that you know some of it will be temporary, some of it will be permanent. But life isn't going to be the same again. And but. We do all react differently. So how do you ever get a chance to measure how somebody is or isn't, you know, able to cope with change and is more or less adaptable than somebody else? It's a great question and one we went about for the last few years to uncover. And I think we're going to spend a number of decades expanding our understanding of that for sure. And where we identify something as as humans and then we begin to understand it you know we get scientists involved we get universities we get you know corporations and communities to start to understand things whether that's about depression or happiness and we start to think about how do we measure it and what can we do as interventions to move the needle in these areas that's life what i wanted to do was rather than in the context of work saying this is the skill somebody requires oh we need more programmers oh we need more data scientists ah oh, customer services is dying so we now need to do this and a lot of these types of things i felt were very short sighted and almost transactional skill acquiring and you know, the half-life of skills is reducing all the time. So you used to be able to go into the education system, acquire a skill, and then provide that for 
your career and you're then just going up the scale of the you know that skill you've done you use it you then might get into a bit of management a bit of you know strategic thinking but generally you're in the same area of what you're contributing that world is gone it's gone for good isn't it it's totally gone it's totally gone and i don't think many even just a year ago could really imagine how quickly that could go and how our underpinning of the functioning of work is going to shift oh there was talk about the gig economy and remote workers and all of these things and suddenly we've had this external factor that has brought to bear a pace of change that has caught many off guard now entrepreneurs you know might have been building their muscles of uncertainty you know voca you know volatile uncertain you know complex and what does the a stand for in voca can't remember right now but this world that we're living in i wanted to equip humanity to deal with uncertainty whatever comes so whatever you face if you've got future confidence to get through that that would be a great legacy so all of these components that might be part of our abilities like grit or mental flexibility or resilience to be able to bounce back uh, from something that didn't go well to be able to unlearn so this concept of uh, you know a process that isn't working anymore might be easy to unlearn to find a new one but what about a process or a product or a service that is successful today how might you unlearn doing that to make room for something else that's where we see a lot of bankruptcies and you know big impacts is because it had been successful for a while then they got caught off guard and it's no longer successful so they couldn't unlearn that before it was too late then characteristics like motivation style you know am i motivated by playing to win or playing not to lose so the communication to me to get the outcome of change needs to be relevant to what will shift my behaviors to make me adapt or not and then other factors of what are the you know um situations that might inhibit or accelerate my ability to adapt is it the people around me do i have team support i might be highly adaptable but if the five people in my team around me aren't then that's going to influence me same in organization and company level so we've started to build this you know uh, metrics of aq so we've had a couple of decades of eq of emotional intelligence and how important that is um my prediction and belief of the next 10 20 years is our aq our adaptability quotient is going to be the number one most critical measure to our success mentally physically in society in work in all areas our ability to navigate change um and so if we can measure that and then put the interventions in place to help people improve it that's a a huge huge opportunity at macro and micro levels no definitely and have you got to the point where you've got a tool that can measure now and the, and create those interventions is is that where you are at that stage of that business or are you at the kind of concept stage where where are you on the journey Yeah so to wrap up so I started you know back at zero again uh, on that business um in terms of starting a new one but I'd got all of the learnings of my previous adventures so it was deciding what do I take forward and what do I not and for the first time I went out and sought investment and that was new in my entrepreneurial journey 
partly brought on by the you know bad effects of uh, a, a not a sale. Part of those consequences the... that we just talked about. <laughs> yeah, there, part of the consequences. So um, actually, I see in the sense of collateral beauty. You know, I see the beauty in that that it's enabled me to look for new solutions. So we. We did a pre-seed last year. Um, as it stands now, we've raised just over half a million uh, that has enabled us to develop the research. We have a product that's very unique in the marketplace of assessments. It's done via a conversational chatbot. We have AI algorithms that then are pulling together the metrics that give an individual report of their uh, adaptability quotient. We then aggregate that up to give team reports and are starting to then do predictive analysis. So what the change readiness and reskill indexes are of workforces. Um, wow. We did some betas with a number of clients. We're just in early access. So we've got some very large organizations that recognize how important adaptability is. Uh, that are engaging in projects with us to help both reskill and upskill their workforces to ensure that they are relevant for tomorrow. Um, so we have an assessment uh, that can be taken. Um, AQ me, uh, we're pioneering a new area. You know, AQ and adaptability quotient was a new thing. We wrote the wiki page. <laughs> we have a yeah. documentary film coming out in a couple of months by a big 15 times Emmy award winning winning director which is great. I've got my second book coming out in a uh, two or three months time called Decoding AQ. So we're really expanding our understanding and knowledge of how we adapt individually as teams and as organizations to prepare for tomorrow. So our engagement is with, you know, HR people, uh, employers that want to understand how do they, you know, pivot <laughs> how do they make sure they are relevant for this new world uh, and do so without our mission is making sure no one's left behind so if people right. are you know perhaps being made redundant at scale how can we provide what is more of an ethical redundancy other than just here's some money hope you figure it out my vision for the future is that any shift and change they're given access to not only our assessment, but our digitized coaching that allows micro learning um, at scale for that supported transition for people through any change, whether that's a work change, a health change, whatever that is. Uh, and that would be an awesome thing to build. That's incredible. And I think we probably answered that very early question I said I'd pose towards the end as to what you are. And I think I'll conclude you're an innovator, Ross. Um, yeah. And an inspiration at that to do some do some good and do some different. And I know that's one of the reasons you've got such a passion for those UN sustainable development goals as well. Um, and I think it's something that you've talked about with passion, these 17 goals before. Just for our listeners, I know you touched on it earlier, but I think it's a really good takeaway for people to go and have a, look at those goals and understand how they can impact them and how they can make a difference between now and 20, uh, 2030. So do you yeah. mind just touching on that for us, Ross? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the global goals, whilst it was, you know, given birth inside the, the UN system, this is for everyone on the planet to get involved in whatever way they want to. And I would be very, very surprised if there isn't something in those 17 goals that would 
ignite an internal spark in somebody, whether it's about education or it's about um, the environment or the way in which we reduce inequalities. There's so many different aspects. And of course, as you go down the rabbit hole, those 17 break down into 69 sub-targets, break down into lots of other things, but you can contribute to them in a whole variety of ways. Um, and it's a community that's growing that gives a common voice and language uh, to join up silos of companies and projects endeavor to a much bigger, greater good. And so that sense of um, you know community on a global level through the global goals is really, um, really interesting. And a last thing, if if that is something people want to do, of course, they can reach out to begin to understand their adaptability through some of our assessments. But my first book was talking about how the, you know, convergence of exponential technologies with the global goals can help create a better world for humanity. So it's called Moonshot Innovation. Um, and that's where I explore those ideas of the global goals with exponential technologies and how leaders can um, transform the way in which the world's designed for tomorrow. Yeah, and listeners, I would definitely recommend that book. And I've heard Ross speak on a couple of occasions around you know, his, his theories on moonshot and innovation. And actually, it's again, another inspirational but thought-provoking uh, topic for us all to consider as we develop and grow our businesses. So yeah, definitely. And the book's available on Amazon, is it, Ross? It is, yeah. Uh, we're just updating a version because we've had a new forward written by somebody and uh, the audiobook versions in production as well. But yes, it's it's on Amazon uh, if people are interested in, in that one. Fantastic. So thank you, Ross. You've been a fantastic, incredible guest on the podcast. If people do want to find out a bit more about you and what you're up to, uh, what's the best... Uh, websites contact details to use for you ross the best one linkedin uh look me up on linkedin ross thornley on there the adaptability business is aqai.io it's a bit of a tongue twister so aq is adaptability quotient ai.io so you can have a look at what we're up to there they're probably enough of the two to get in touch Brilliant. Thank you, Ross. It's been, as I say, incredible to have you as a guest on the podcast. Uh, and I wish you all the best for the future. Thanks, Warren. Let's go and innovate and inspire together. Great stuff. I really hope you found that conversation as fascinating as I did. I loved hearing about Ross's constant drive to push forward creatively, adapt to a changing landscape, and how he builds relationships with a view of long-term results. There's a lot to be learned from this kind of patience and the ability to look ahead while still remaining alert to the immediate need and changes in your business. Ross is at the forefront of some amazing innovative things and I'm really excited to see where his personal journey leads him. Next week's episode will be our 20th and to celebrate, we're presenting a best of episode featuring some great stories, thoughts and ideas from all of our guests up until now. Until then, if you haven't yet done so, please do go to evolvemembers.com and sign up as to become a free member of Evolve. This gives you access to great content, events and an opportunity to join one of our peer groups. I'd also like to remind you of our COVID-19 Resources Centre 
which has been set up to inform, support and inspire you during the current crisis. Please do go have a look and sign up for one of our weekly Zoom peer groups. The sharing and support of these groups really are making a big difference to a lot of business owners at the moment. Inspire also continuing to support our clients and also putting out practical guidance and resources on reliefs and funding that is available to you. Therefore, please also go take a look at inspireaccountants.co.uk to find out more. I really do hope you've enjoyed this episode and if so, please do rate, review and subscribe to future episodes. Thanks again for listening and until next time, from all of the Evolve team, take care and stay safe. Thank you.